0: I'm Dale Mason, publisher of Answers Magazine, and this is Creation Answers, a podcast of Answers in Genesis, featuring highlights from the award-winning Answers Magazine. In this Thanksgiving episode, we'll explore two of God's most wonderful gifts which make life so enjoyable. But they're things we take for granted, sleep, and tasty foods. Listen up and see if you can resist the temptation to run to the fridge.
1: Confession time. On rare occasions, not to exceed once a month other than around Christmas, this cut the grass with a hand pusher reel lawnmower, workout warrior likes to swipe his way through the colorful confines of his wife's Pinterest boards. I admit it, this social media powerhouse pulls me in. I'm a sucker for her jam-packed collections with such innocuous names as Breakfast, Dinner, and Dessert. Those titles hardly do them justice. That's because my wife's mouth-watering online discoveries get my taste buds firing as I skim through beef barley skillet and peanut butter banana bread and French toast casserole. If she's discovered it, That means we'll be eating it soon. And with each tap, I can already taste the chocolate cheesecake, rosemary sweet potato fries, and ranch chicken pizza. If you didn't catch that, we like food. Whether it's Japanese hibachi or Thai noodles or Swedish meatballs, our culinary explorations take us around the world without leaving our dining room. She and I slice and chop and sizzle and julienne and grind with assorted gizmos and gadgets we've collected over the years. You could say we're fans of God's invitation to Adam and Eve to go out and enjoy the food he caused to grow. See Genesis chapter 1 verse 29 and chapter 2 verse 9. And Nehemiah's suggestion that God's people celebrate his goodness with feasts of choice food. Nehemiah chapter 8 verse 10. As Christians, we don't see food preparation as a necessary evil or as an end in itself. Paul warned about foodies whose God is their belly, Philippians chapter 3, verse 19. But he also says, God gives us richly all things to enjoy, 1 Timothy 6, verse 17. We see food as something special, an intentional God-given witness to remind human beings daily about their Creator's goodness. How does food do that for starters? it tastes so good, seriously, on the one hand, God glories in the fact that He is the one who puts food on our tables, Psalm one hundred four verse fourteen and one hundred forty five verse fifteen, and gives us our daily bread, Matthew chapter six verse eleven. But he does so much more. He brings the spice to our dinner plates. We see God's goodness not just in how He provides the food we need. Food is meant for our pleasure, and God in His creativity gave us a great variety of genuinely tasty delights. When the Apostle Paul preached to Greeks in Lystra, known to be lovers of good food and drink, notice what he said. God did not leave Himself without witness, in that He did good, gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. Acts 14, verse 17 Our food could have been a bland, monotonous necessity, like the tube food that NASA forced on early astronauts. We'd get a tasteless white tube of vitamins and basic nutrients we need to survive, but we wouldn't enjoy it. Instead, we foodies can rejoice. The Creator chose to sustain us with a cornucopia of delights that thrill us with each bite of ripe mango or sip of Sumatrian coffee. Every time we sink our teeth into Parmesan-crusted chicken or rich chocolate mousse, we have a good reason to stop and enjoy pleasant thoughts about the kind of Heavenly Father who planned this wonderful spread for us. In other words, every single day there's ample evidence of God's abundant care And love for us. And it's as close as your pantry. When you look at how God designed this world and our role in meeting our culinary needs, you'll taste and see that the Lord is good in a whole new way. No offense meant to what the psalmist said in Psalm 34, verse 8. Our Creator is a great provider. One look in the supermarket produce section proves as much. But that's just the basic recipe. To fully appreciate his handiwork and provision, we need to put on our aprons or chef's hats as creatures made in his image and use our God-given talents to imagine and invent an infinite variety of new combinations to please our palates. All it takes is something we take for granted. Food prep. Ready? Grab your forks and let's dig in. A Virtuous Cycle Making food isn't easy. I'm not talking about putting together ingredients from your refrigerator to make a BLT. I'm not even talking about whipping up a perfect lemon meringue. I'm talking about growing and gathering the ingredients in the first place. Farmers work hard to plant and cultivate crops, but that's not the beginning. In our post-agrarian society, we take for granted the complex natural cycles and biological systems that cause seeds to sprout, shoots to spring up, and fruits to fill out. Whether people give God credit or not, He faithfully keeps the cycle of sun and rain going. Matthew chapter 5, verse 45. Those waving fields of barley and pungent apple orchards serve as continual reminders of our Creator's care. He designed the water cycle to drop rain on our vegetable gardens and the sun to send just the right type of light for plants to convert energy into food. Bees obey their God-given mission to zip in and pollinate our blueberry bushes and peach trees and then return to make tasty honey. God designed all these delight-producing systems in the beginning. All around you, God's food factory churns day and night. Season after season, year after year, we're seeing God's kindness in all that He provides. Yet this is not all it reminds us of. He gave us the privilege of participating, too. Humans are overseers, or stewards, of His creation. God devised our work, tending the garden, from the beginning, as an integral thread in His original design. He intended human beings to bring new and enjoyable combinations. Out of his original raw resources, just as he planted a beautiful garden east of Eden, filled with every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Genesis chapter 2 verse 9. In other words, God gave us the raw goods to make peach cobbler and tacos. But producing Sunday night's feast out of stone fruit or black beans requires using our God-given noggin noodles to make magic happen. Because of the curse in Genesis chapter 3, we sweat when we work and suffer blisters and calluses and backaches. But the work itself is a blessing, and the toil is a valuable reminder of our dependence on God. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 verses 18-19 through 19. Many people barely scratch out an existence, but except in the direst of circumstances, Even they find ways to add variety to their simple food, with wild onions, garlic, and other spices freely available everywhere. All aspects of food preparation, down to laboring in the fields, should truly fill every heart with joy. How sweet it is! We also need to realize that we didn't invent the rich and varied flavors on our table. God did. Think about it. He gave us specialized tongues and palates to detect all these flavors so our food would taste incredible. He came up with the range of flavors and gave us the tools to experience them. Enjoying food really matters to Him, it seems. After all, Jesus Christ designed the human body and then became human. He will remain human forever, and feast with us throughout eternity, including the twelve fruits mentioned in Revelation chapter 22, verse 2. So he really wanted to enjoy his meals, too. Consider all the times food comes into play in the Gospels. Gospels. From Jesus' feeding of the five thousand to the three occasions he ate after the resurrection, including the broiled fish and honeycomb the disciples gave him. Luke chapter 24, verse 42 and his decision to grill fish and bake bread for the disciples at the seashore. John chapter 21, verse 9. His fellowship with his followers often involved food. In fact, Jesus describes our gathering in heaven as a wedding feast, not just a plain meal of boiled wheat, but a full-fledged prepared banquet. Even just thinking about shepherd's pie or sweet cherries or a cheese omelet, can get you watching the clock in anticipation of lunch. That's because God intended us to enjoy the produce He produced and the infinite variety of ways we can serve it. Want further proof? Just open up and say, ah. Right there on your tongue, you'll find a conglomeration of thousands of pieces of evidence that God cares about you having a mouthful of yum. Those small structures called papillae contain taste buds, where your taste receptor cells live. They come in a variety of shapes and sizes, looking something like a coral reef under the microscope. Each receptor helps you enjoy different tastes. Behind those receptors is a nervous system that processes this medley of information and makes sure we extract every ounce of pleasure possible from each morsel. We could get into all the anatomy, but that's the subject of another article. See page 24. Just consider the highlights. When that delicious salmon enters your mouth, more than just the taste receptors jump into action. Special glands secrete saliva to help break your food up into tiny molecules so your taste buds can detect them. Wait, what? The food itself is designed with tiny flavor molecules that your mouth was designed to distinguish as flavor, such as sweet bitter and umami savory this whole system of lock and key taste molecules and receptors had to be planned from the start without these elaborate systems in place we wouldn't taste anything and without a sophisticated brain to keep all these flavors straight your salt and vinegar chips might taste like soap any description of how your body preps the food and then savors the flavor doesn't do our Creator justice. But even a basic picture shows that God went to incredible lengths to make sure you enjoy that ham on rye sandwich and sweet corn. A world full of flavor So far, we've talked about God's design to bring flavors to our kitchens, natural cycles and human labor, and our body's design to enjoy them, taste buds but why do we have so many tasty foods in the first place? That's a gift from God, too. When I was a kid, I had no love for apples. I'd eat them, but given the choice between green Granny Smith and red Delicious, I'd rather just pick applesauce. One soured my stomach, and the other had skin that reminded me of plastic. When I got older, though, I had several Eureka moments in the form of Fuji apples and Pink Lady and Honeycrisp. In my youth, I somehow missed that other types existed. Talented agriculturists have mixed and matched apple varieties over the past decades and keep coming up with new, and so much better in my opinion, variations. Though the potential for this variety has always been there, locked inside that crispy, sweet, Apple kind DNA. I came to love the crunchy varieties, and now they're a staple in our kitchen. And the eureka moments have kept coming purple potatoes, chia seeds, spaghetti squash, white carrots, lingonberry juice. The natural variety of fruits and vegetables continually astounds me. When God spoke the plants into being during Creation Week, He put information within their DNA so that over the next 6,000 years, our world would blossom with their wide-ranging fruits. If you don't like one, you can pick another. Such variety reminds us that our Creator loves a veritable smorgasbord of flavors, just like we do. He's not boring. He made every person different and cultures different. He made our palates different, and He provided an infinite variety of options for us to explore. The ability of each kind of plant and animal to produce so many varieties has ensured that this world is a rich and varied place. That even extends to human cultures, which are in large measure built upon the local foods they can grow. Asians, whose life revolves around seasonal typhoons and flooded fields, enjoy rice, while Latin Americans, who live in the relatively dry temperate zone, love maize and beans. People living in South America's cold Andes Mountains feast on Kosava, while people living in the sweltering, nutrient-poor jungles of Papua New Guinea thrive on taro. Today, with our efficient transportation network, we can pick and choose from all these options and create new combinations never dreamed of before. The potential remains unlimited, literally. The Creator knew this ahead of time and planned for it. Like a father who already knows all the possibilities in the kitchen, he laid out the tools and ingredients and waited to see what his children would do with them. God didn't just create different kinds of food. He created incredible variety within the same kinds. And this variety is much greater than you might realize. Take the cruciferous family. They get this unusual name from the flowers of these plants, which have four petals. That looks like a crucifix or cross you're probably familiar with one of the most popular vegetables in this family broccoli which finds its way into soups and casseroles at your church potluck dinner and is quite tasty roasted with some olive oil salt and pepper but did you know cauliflower cabbage kale bok choy collard greens kohlrabi brussels sprouts turnips and watercress belong in the same family? This wide collection of vegetables is commonly known as the cabbage family. If you don't like one variety, perhaps you'll enjoy the other. And each one offers similar health benefits. God was looking out for those picky kids who never grew up. Setting the Table The next time you push back in your chair from a delicious meal and sigh in satisfaction, take time to remember just what goes into making that gumbo or cob salad, so good to eat. If you ever doubt that our God is good, let the savory flavor of food remind you of how much he truly loves and lavishes his goodness on all of us. Then, when you find yourself on Pinterest, pinning that baked salmon or sharing a cinnamon roll recipe, remember that food is more than just a tasty part of life. It can be a platform to share the truth about our great heavenly Father. God gave food as a witness to people of every tribe and tongue and every status of life. We all must eat. We all must prepare food. That means that every person on the planet already knows about his gracious character. Taste and share that the Lord is gracious. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 3.
0: That was Taste and See, written by John Upchurch, a popular writer for Answers magazine, and a confessed foodie. It's a mouth-watering reminder that every meal should make us thankful for what our Creator has provided. In Genesis 6.21, God commanded Noah to gather and take every kind of food for his family and the animals. What might this have looked like on board the ark? Discover this and more when you visit the Ark Encounter near Cincinnati. Plan your visit to this huge wooden structure at ArkEncounter.com. It's open year-round. ArkEncounter.com So, after that article on food, we should remember to thank God every time we enjoy a bite to eat. The next article is another wake-up call. We should also be thanking the Creator for the underappreciated gift of
2: sleep. Alexa, snooze. I don't know how many times I command the alarm some mornings. Do you ever feel like you're not getting enough sleep? Perhaps you aren't. The average American and Australian today sleep fewer than seven hours a night, a decrease of about two hours from a century ago. Nine hours were too much, in the opinion of Thomas Edison, who helped change our sleep habits when he brought light bulbs into our nights. He actually said, sleep is an absurdity, a bad habit, and announced that people who slept when darkness fell were far less intelligent than those who turned on lights to continue working. Sleep was a waste of time, he thought, so Edison focused on creating the light bulb, and it worked. According to the U.S. Centers for Disease Control, around 70 million American adults are chronically sleep-deprived, snoozing less than the recommended minimum of about seven hours a night. Indeed, we are proud of our sleeplessness. Dr. Matthew Walker author of Why We Sleep and professor of neuroscience and psychology at the University of California, Berkeley, says people have this braggadocio about how little sleep they're getting. Everyone is desperate to seem busy because we equate busyness with importance. Edison was, it turns out, dead wrong. Current research shows just how much we need our sleep and what happens if we don't get enough. In fact, our need for sleep is by design. According to our creator's own written word, Psalm 127, verse 2, Sleep is actually a precious gift from Him, and not just on those days when we don't have to rise with the alarm. What is sleep? The Bible doesn't say much about the specific purposes of sleep, beyond our need for rest and as a euphemism for death. Yet it reminds us that God, the ultimate engineer who created our complex, amazing bodies, also planned from the very beginning an efficient system for our bodies and brains to rest from their labors and recuperate. Genesis tells us that God created most of the universe to run in a cycle. The earth cycles around the sun to create the year. The earth spins on a cycle to create days. Just as days, months, seasons, and years go in cycles of darkness, rest, and re-energization, so do our bodies. Long before humans learned to tell time, God wired into our bodies a biological clock to take advantage of the different times of day and night. This clock is basically a 24-hour repeating rhythm called the circadian rhythm. These internal clocks can be traced down to the genetic level as cells have individual clock genes so they can adapt to changing needs throughout the day. Overseeing them all is a small region of the brain's hypothalamus called the suprachiasmatic nucleus, or SCN. This body clock releases chemicals into your body in a daily rhythm. So how does sleep fit into this rhythm? During your waking hours, a compound called adenosine, a byproduct of energy consumption, accumulates in several key locations in the brain. As adenosine increases, it signals your brain to prepare the body for sleep. During sleep, your brain's cells break down the adenosine. If you don't get enough sleep, too much adenosine remains, making you feel tired when you wake up. Melatonin is a pillow pal of adenosine. When daylight begins fading, your eyes notify the brain and the pineal gland at the base of your brain starts to pump melatonin into your bloodstream as the melatonin increases it signals your body that it's time for sleep and it helps you feel drowsy when morning arrives and the retina detects light it signals the brain to slow down the release of melatonin even the smallest amount of light can reduce the production of melatonin and start to wake us up you see why we can blame edison for some of our sleep problems lights out time to party once upon a time people thought when we sleep Our brains basically go inactive. Mistake, when the lights go out, it's party time for the brain. Around 86 billion neurons, the brain cells that transmit information to other nerve cells, muscles, or glands, get busy communicating through electrical and chemical signals. Meanwhile, our sensory receptors that help us keep in touch with the surrounding environment shut down. The transition to deep sleep occurs in three stages. The first is called stage one. This shallow end of sleep usually lasts around five minutes. And if people wake up at this initial stage, they may not even realize they've been asleep. Sleepers may feel muscle jerks or a falling sensation. As we enter stage two of sleep, the brain comes alive. A series of half-second electric sparks, called spindles, start to zap the cerebral cortex, the gray matter that covers the outer layer of the brain where language and consciousness are based. As these spindles stimulate the cortex, this part of the brain preserves information we've recently acquired. It might also link this new information to existing memories. The more spindles that fire up at night, the more likely we are to do well at new tasks the next day. While awake, the brain is optimized to collect external stimuli, but the sleeping brain consolidates that information. It moves from a recording mode into an editing mode, analyzing the information to decide which memories to keep and which to delete. A 2011 study published in the Journal of Neuroscience, found that the brain's prefrontal cortex appears to tag memories that may be important or useful for the future, while the hippocampus consolidates those memories during sleep. Out cold, the busy activities of stage two can fill almost an hour of the first 90-minute sleep cycle. The spindle fireworks explode every few seconds for a while, but as they taper off, our heart rate slows and our body temperature drops. We're literally out cold as we sink into deeper sleep and lose all ability to notice anything going on around us. Thomas Scammell, a neurology professor at Harvard Medical School, explains why it's so valuable to shut down our senses. Being awake is demanding. You've got to go out there and outcompete every other organism to survive. And the consequences are that you need a period of rest to help cells recuperate. We may not agree with Scammell's evolutionary stance of survival of the fittest, but he has a point. Being awake is certainly demanding. During stage three, we respond even less to interruptions than we did in stage two. Since the spindles have decreased, our body starts to produce slow, deep brain waves, called delta waves, similar to those produced by coma patients. These waves increase as we move deeper into our sleep cycle. We don't dream during stage three, and we may not even be able to feel pain, though night terrors, intense feelings of fear and screaming, can occur. While we are in this relaxed state, our brains and bodies remain at work. While we're awake, our neurons are packed together. But during sleep, brain cells apparently deflate by up to 60%, widening the spaces between them. Studies of mice indicate that the cells dump their metabolic waste into these spaces, including beta-amyloid, a toxic chemical that hinders communication between neurons and is linked to Alzheimer's. During sleep, Spinal fluid then sloshes through these passageways in the brain, taking the toxins with it. Giulio Tononi at the University of Wisconsin-Madison has suggested that another major function of sleep is to reset the connections between our neurons, called synapses. This would keep our brains from becoming overloaded with new memories, like too many appliances plugged into an outlet. That gives us room to make fresh memories and learn new information the next day. Studies of mice in 2017 provided indirect evidence Their synapses shrank nearly 20% during sleep. Also, during deep sleep, cells make repairs, and the brain ramps up the production of growth hormones, which we need throughout life to rebuild bones and muscles. The eyes have it. These three stages of sleep are usually categorized together in a grouping called non-REM or NREM sleep. REM stands for rapid eye movement. While we're in the three stages of NREM sleep, our eyes remain primarily relaxed but when we hit this really deep sleep called REM sleep, our eyes come alive. Around 90 minutes after falling asleep, we move into our first round of REM sleep. Each night, our bodies actually go through about four to five sleep cycles, going back to stages one to three, and then back to REM. The REM stage gets longer each time, and the NREM three stage gets shorter. The final REM sleep cycle can last up to an hour, We spend about 20 to 25% of our sleep time in REM sleep. REM sleep is regulated by the brainstem, a different part of the brain from the parts controlling NREM sleep. REM sleep is vital for our mental well-being. If we're awakened as we're drifting into REM sleep and aren't allowed to enter that stage, researchers found we're likely to experience increased tension, anxiety, depression, difficulty concentrating, lack of coordination, weight gain, and a tendency to hallucinate. As we move into REM sleep, Our body's muscles fall into a stage of near paralysis, only moving occasionally. Our eyes move rapidly beneath closed eyelids, similar to the way they do when we're awake. Scientists have not pinpointed why the eye movement occurs, although it may be linked with dreaming. Our body temperature also drops, and our heart rate and respiration speed up. We also take in more oxygen as our breathing becomes fast and shallow. Some experts say that during REM sleep, the brain may be even more active than it is during wakefulness. According to the National Sleep Foundation, during REM sleep, the brain processes information from the day to store it in the long-term memory. Oh, the places you'll go. Dreams can occur any time during sleep, but the most vivid ones occur during deep REM sleep when the brain is most active. Sigmund Freud, the famous psychoanalyst, believed dreams revealed a person's unconscious thoughts. That probably isn't true, most scientists say. Some research say our dreams are just a side effect of brain activity, that the brain activity is more important than the actual dreams. While dreaming, the brain reshapes itself by rewiring and strengthening connections between neurons. According to the authors of How Your Brain Works, dreams help us consolidate our memories to make sense of our new experiences, process them, and keep our emotions in check. Another gift from sleep which keeps us from becoming emotionally overwhelmed. An unwrapped gift. A gift is meant for our blessing. And if we neglect a gift like sleep, we do so at our own peril. Every single disease that is killing us in the developed world has significant and many causal links to insufficient sleep, concludes Matthew Walker, the author of Why We Sleep. Decision-making, problem-solving, focusing, balance when you walk, reaction time, all these things are inhibited by lack of sleep. No wonder inadequate sleep contributes to hundreds of thousands of accidents each year, including 6,000 annual fatalities caused by drowsy driving. Not getting enough sleep is also connected to many other tragic health problems. If you are sleep deprived, for instance, you're 33% more likely to face dementia. Your immune system weakens, so you're three times as likely to catch a cold. Risk for colorectal cancer increases 36%. Sleep deprived folks have three times the risk of becoming diabetic than their sleeping counterparts. Sleeplessness affects the body's release of insulin. You have a 50% higher risk of becoming obese. The chemicals that signal hunger get out of whack. You're 48% more likely to develop heart disease. Your blood pressure base gets higher. And the list goes on. It only makes sense that God made our bodies and their cycles to work together so precisely for our optimal health. And when sleep gets out of sync, we should go back to our Creator to put everything back in balance. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for He gives to His beloved sleep. Psalm 127, verse 2. Our Creator wants us to rely on Him to give us strength to complete the tasks He has for us while it's day. But when it's time for sleep, we need to take our rest, displaying our faith in Him. As Solomon, the classic example of a workaholic, tells us in Ecclesiastes 5, verse 12, sweet is the sleep of a laborer. At the end of a long, hard day, God gives us the gift of sweet, refreshing sleep. He wants us to view our lives that way, too. We should devote ourselves to the Lord's work while it's day. But when the day is over, he promises us eternal rest, or sleep.
0: That article, God's Gift of Sleep, was written by Jeanette Littleton. She's authored over 3,000 articles for various publishers. I hope you put her practical tips into practice. I have, and I'm sleeping better because of it. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed these articles... There are hundreds more at our website, AnswersMagazine.com. The links to today's articles are listed in our show notes, and I encourage you to subscribe to receive the magazine in your mailbox every other month. You will love that you're better able to share and defend your faith. I'm Dale Mason, publisher at Answers Magazine, and for the entire team, God bless.